Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading and Evaluating the Demond Brothers. We're going to jump right back in on their supposed refutation of Sola Scriptura. Oh my gosh. Does it only get worse from here, guys? The Bible teaches that oral tradition must be accepted along with Scripture. We addressed this argument last week. If every Tom, Dick, and Harry came along claiming that they had some oral tradition that you had to obey and believe, then our religion would be incoherent. Besides, I doubt that the DeMond brothers follow the Talmud, which claims to be oral Torah or oral tradition from Moses and the elders of Israel. But let's just see what they have to say about it. The following passages completely refute the idea of Scripture alone. I doubt that, Peter. They show that the Bible teaches that apostolic tradition must also be accepted. This apostolic tradition was given by Jesus to the apostles, but not every part of it was necessarily written explicitly in the Bible. As an example, in Jude 1 verse 9 we read, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The dispute between the devil and Michael the archangel is not described in any detail in the Bible. The writer is drawing on a tradition. Uh, he's drawing on a previous writing on intertestamental apocrypha and not the Deuterocanon, by the way. Does the Roman Catholic Church consider those writings and sources to be canon? They don't. Besides that, St. Jude was not citing an oral tradition. He was citing a written tradition and the commonly accepted facts concerning the body of Moses. It's funny that they don't cite uh, his quotation of the book of Enoch in the epistle of St. Jude, because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't consider that book to be canon or inspired. So here the DeMond brothers are confusing a written tradition from multiple sources in the pre-New Testament era with oral tradition. And they're saying that that means that you have to obey, quote-unquote, apostolic tradition, which we'll get to, I guess. The following passages from the New Testament confirm Catholic teaching on the necessity to accept both scripture and tradition. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. That is in regards to conduct, not in regards to dogma, but okay. Then they pull out the big font for 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. This clearly shows that the Bible itself teaches that not everything must be believed is written down, but some of it is delivered by the oral tradition. Okay, so, question for the DeMond brothers. 
What were the traditions that were not written down in the first century AD, do you know? Do you have a 100% guarantee that you know exactly every little thing that St. Paul taught the Thessalonian church? No, you don't. Because this was before the canon of Scripture was complete. And I would wager that the canon of the New Testament is the complete apostolic tradition. Do you know why? Because we didn't have, back then, and we don't have right now, a magic time machine to go back and listen to them. And when you think about this guy passed on a tradition to this guy, passed on a tradition to that guy, over and over and over again, that idea of apostolic oral tradition becomes a victim to the telephone game, as well as the problem of authority, where somebody claims that they were touched by a guy who was touched by a guy who was touched by a guy over and over again until you get to St. Peter or something, and they claim that means they're infallible and you have to listen to them. We have the Bible for a reason, dork. You can't just trust somebody who says they have oral tradition. Otherwise, we would never have had to call an ecumenical council to posthumously anathematize the likes of Origen and Honorius. But I, I digress a little there. They cite a few other verses, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, in which they claim, again, this is how they're orienting it, when St. Paul says, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. Or 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, We have no such custom, neither do the churches of God. Interesting that they would bring up the head coverings passage as an argument for oral tradition. Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 and 3, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, dot, dot, dot. Now, of course, the ellipses there, the dot, 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 is there because they don't want you actually reading all of the passage in which St. Paul tells us the tradition that he delivered to the Corinthian church. Let's go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Ah, you see now why they skipped the first verse, because uh, he says he was preaching the gospel, not some infallible apostolic tradition. It is rendered infallible because of the Holy Spirit, and it is communicated to us here in the word. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There. There is St. Paul telling you exactly what the apostolic tradition was before the canon of the New Testament was complete. It's that simple. There you go. But they want to say, as these passages prove, Jesus' condemnation of the traditions of men in Matthew 15, 9 and Mark 7, 8 had nothing to do with the true apostolic tradition which the Bible says we must accept. Jesus was condemning the man-made practices of the Pharisees. <laughs> no. No, it wasn't just man-made practices that the Pharisees were pushing. They were pushing a quote-unquote oral Torah, claiming to go all the way back down to Moses, that you, if you were a first century Hebrew, had to follow on account of the force of oral tradition. So a question for Mr. DeMond here is, why should I believe Catholic oral tradition over the Mosaic oral tradition, or the Eastern Orthodox oral tradition, or the Oriental Orthodox tradition? Why is yours correct and theirs is all wrong? Oh, and by the way, why is your oral tradition in the, the Most Holy Family Monastery or whatever, your tiny little group of set of accountists, why should I believe that the traditions that you accept are correct over and above the modern Vatican II Church, the Novus Ordo Church? See, here's another problem with the idea of scripture and tradition being taken as equals. One, you have to suddenly get into this weird lawyering idea of whose tradition is correct. The second is you have to grapple with the fact that any magisterium pushing a tradition is only pushing the tradition that they like. None of the demands teachings, none of the tradition that they accept is going to include whatever the Novus Ordo says. They're not going to include Vatican II. They are not going to include Nostra Aetate. They're certainly not going to include anything Pope Francis has written. So then, okay, you don't actually believe in some sort of universal binding apostolic oral tradition. You believe in certain things in tradition being valid and others not being valid. You know what's always valid? The Bible. The infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. The only source of faith and morals. The norming norm. Now this is something that the current Roman Catholic Church does admit. They admit that all these things that I just said about the Bible are true. They don't say that about every single teacher that has ever been in the Roman Catholic magisterium and everything they say about it. Because then they would have to, uh, they would have to anathematize a whole lot of church fathers and a whole lot of thinkers who got things quote-unquote wrong.
like uh, Clement of Rome, you know, the guy who wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, an associate of St. Paul and St. Peter, who proclaimed sola fide. <laughs> but they don't stop there in their supposed takedown of us dirty prots. They don't stop there in their hopes that you would ignore just how subjective the topic of church tradition is. The church existed for decades before the Bible was even finished. According to scholars, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was written in approximately 68 AD at the earliest and approximately 95 AD at the latest. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven in approximately 33 AD. Therefore, no matter what view one takes on the date of the book of Revelation, there's no doubt that the Church of Christ existed and operated for decades before the Bible was even finished. So who guided the Christians during that period? How did they know exactly what they had to believe and do to be saved? It was the Church which taught them. No, it was the apostles, doofus. And you know what the apostles did to make sure that everybody could get that message even after they died? All right, here. Come in close, Mr. Damon. Ready? You ready? They wrote the New Testament. Now, here's where they get cheeky, though. They say, uh, it wasn't until the 4th century that the canon of the Bible was finally determined. Now, already that title is something that they ought to reject if they believe in Vatican I, which rightly says that the church did not decide what books were in the Bible. They discovered the books that were in the Bible. That is a massive difference. The church is not the Lord of the Scriptures. The Lord of the Scriptures is the Lord who, you know, inspired them. God. But that's not going to stop them, of course. They have to keep going. This is a crucial point. In the first three centuries after Christ, there were disputes about the precise makeup of the Bible. The official list of biblical books, called the canon, was not the same everywhere. Some books, which were considered to be part of the Bible in some localities, were suspected or rejected in others. And of course, what do they bring up? Uh, the Didache, that's a Judaizing document. The Epistle of Barnabas, Spurius, First Clement, nice epistle. We're reading it in the Church Fathers series, uh, but he gets things wrong, so it can't be infallible. He misquotes scripture in a few places, therefore it is not Bible. They bring up the Shepherd of Hermas, which is uh, Montanist nonsense. And they say, in some cases, they were considered inspired scripture and used in public worship. So, whoever thought that was wrong, simple as, there was an issue for a few centuries in which some people did not understand that in order for something to be scripture, it must be inspired and infallible, meaning it will have no contradictions whatsoever with the rest of holy scripture. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are plenty of contradictions between the scriptures and the Didache. There are plenty of contradictions between the Bible and the Shepherd of Hermas. This is part of how we as the church discovered which books were canon and which ones 
are not. But skipping forward a little bit, because he tries to bring up a supposed debate regarding 2 Peter, Jude, Hebrews, 2nd and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. They conveniently forget that James at times was part of that debate, but that's, you know, that's the DeMond brothers' favorite book of the Bible. Uh, they claim that, oh yeah, that was, that was just so, so hard for the church. It was such a debate, and no, it really wasn't. They bring up the uh, Muratorian fragment, which is a fragment, and we don't even know if it was supposed to be just a canon. It's a fragment. It's not complete. <laughs> but they go on because they want to they hit you with that kill shot that isn't really a kill shot. They say, since Protestants reject the authority of the Catholic Church, they have absolutely no way of determining with certainty which books make up the Bible. The Bible doesn't come with a table of contents. That has been added by the one who published your version of the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us which books are inspired or how many books are in it. Moreover, even if one book did mention other books as being inspired, by what criteria could one determine that that particular book is inspired? In order to arrive at an infallible list of books, there must be an infallible authority outside of the Bible, that is the church. Therefore, if one rejects the infallible authority of the church and holds to scripture alone, he remains unable to determine if he has the true books. Listen, Mr. DeMond, uh, dork. I have faith in God. I know you don't. You have faith in a church that's dead, according to you. <laughs> there, there is no Catholic Church, right? The Novus Ordo Church took over and, and extinguished it. And, and that's why you're so unhappy in your little monastery, right? But I fully trust God to protect the canon. He will use fallible men to recognize infallible books. It certainly appears to have shaken out that way, doesn't it? Isn't it really nice that we have those books? But for the sake of argument, let's go ahead and seed the point that, oh yes, who gave you the Bible prot is somehow a legitimate argument. Whenever some butthole comes up to you and says, who gave you the Bible prot? It was the church. So you should follow the church prot. Of course, I mean, that's basically what they're saying right here. Which church? The Orthodox will tell you that they gave you the Bible prot. The Roman Catholics will say, they gave you the Bible, prot. All of these different groups will say, who gave you the Bible, prot? <laughs> we did. And so you have to follow what we say and believe what we believe. Because the church is Lord of the Bible. Okay, so why doesn't your church follow what the Bible says? How come like every single church body that has these snotty little douchebags running around going, who gave you the Bible, prot? All of them have doctrines and practices that are contrary to scripture. They really do. Like, this has been a big thing. Either they add a bunch of stuff to the scriptures with their oral traditions, and then they claim it is binding on you. And there's so many instances in which they just flat contradict. 
And oh, they'll claim it's not a contradiction at all. For instance, if we go to Colossians 2, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Hmm. Now, what church passed a bunch of arbitrary dietary restrictions during Lent and on Fridays? And you would get in trouble. You committed a grave sin if you didn't follow those rules. Hmm. I, I wonder actually whether there's a church out there that tells all of their congregation members to fast twice a week, straight up Pharisee style. Hmm. Interesting. Or if we uh, skip over to verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Of course, St. Paul does identify that head to be Christ. If your church insists on asceticism, I shouldn't be a part of your church. St. Paul tells me not to. Do you remember the uh, cadet honor code in like the, uh, the army academy where it says, I will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. Well, like, all of them have to take that promise. All of them have to make that oath or whatever. And they are not supposed to lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. It's like that with what St. Paul writes in Colossians. And there's many other standards in the New Testament for whether or not to listen to a teacher. If they tell you, oh, go starve yourself. You have to do this. Besides, St. Beardy or whatever in a cave had a vision, so you have to follow that. And we really want you to pray to this angel here, to St. Michael the Archangel, but it, don't worry. It's not super worship. It's kind of worship. We're going to call it veneration. All right. According to St. Paul's like cadet oath he had us all take, uh, I'm not supposed to follow you. Now, the DeMond brothers agree with me, by the way. They might try to couch this as the Bible doesn't matter because the church is Lord of the Bible. And even if the church appears to contradict the Bible, it's not really. Um, they'll be the first to tell you that the Vatican II church contradicts the Bible. They don't want you to be a Roman Catholic. They want you to be a particular breed of set of a contest Catholic with bonus points if you go to their monastery. They don't agree with the church that they're pushing. Now, they move on to bringing up some dumb quote from R.C. Sproul. I don't care what R.C. Sproul says. And they call him a Protestant, but hashtag not my Protestant. I'm a Lutheran. But then they bring up this old canard. As a case in point, after separating from the Catholic Church, Martin Luther and his fellow Protestants removed seven complete books from the Bible. They removed the books of Tobit, Judith, Ecclesiasticus, Wisdom, Barak, First and Second Maccabees, as well as parts of Esther and Daniel. As a result, Protestant Bibles to this day have 66 books, while Catholic Bibles have 73. Martin Luther and the Protestants 
made the radical decision to remove these seven books from the Bible, even though they had been almost universally acknowledged as part of the Bible for over a millennium. No, Luther didn't remove these books from his Bible. He put them as intertestamental books, saying that they are not inspired scripture, but nonetheless belong in your Bible because they are important for historical context and important for helping us to understand the world of the first century church. And some of the stuff from scripture refers back to that. But also... None of those seven books were declared canon until the Council of Trent. So you tell me, guys, why did your church wait until Luther was dead to declare these books to be canon? And if, if it wasn't an established thing, what did Luther do wrong by saying they're not canon? Nobody would establish that by a council or a magisterium or a papal bull, right? So according to your own rules, he didn't remove them from the Bible. It wasn't decided on yet, dork. But also this notion of, like, removing books from the Bible. Ooh, so spooky and evil and wicked. Like, didn't you guys do that? You brought up the Muratorian fragment with books that are not accepted by anybody as canon right now. So did the, did the Catholic Church remove books from the Bible because they went against the Muratorian canon? No. No, they, they didn't. <laughs> it would be stupid to claim that. And the DeMond brothers would probably agree and say, well, those books, it really wasn't a discussion yet that the Church was having. Like, okay, but you could say the same thing about the Deuterocanon, all right? I mean, this is a stupid thing to throw out and claim that, boy, you Protestants sure have an incomplete Bible. Additionally, the seven books which the Protestants removed are found in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was completed a few centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ. Some might ask, what's so important about the Septuagint? Well, as mentioned in the section on purgatory, the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament 350 times, and about 300 of those quotes are from the Septuagint version. That means that the authors of the New Testament accepted the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, and thus the seven books which the Protestants rejected. No, they accepted those verses from the Septuagint. Do you understand? If you are claiming that the Septuagint is the infallible version of the Old Testament with an infallible canon of books, you are claiming that all of those verses that the New Testament writers give us, quoting from non-Septuagint sources, are lies. Lies and distortions. If you claim that the Septuagint is the only legitimate Old Testament, you are calling St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, St. John, St. Paul, St. Peter, and James, you're calling all of them liars. And you've already rejected the infallibility of the New Testament at large. Why? Because you want Bell and the Dragon? Because you want First and Second Maccabees? Because you just love the horribly inaccurate footnotes in the book of Job for the Septuagint? Get over yourself, weirdo. Oh, something's old, therefore it is true. No, that's not always the case. Anyway, uh, they bring up uh, 
should be noted, they said, that it was not the Bible, but tradition in the church which determined the authorship of the biblical books. Of course, they bring up the Gospel of Matthew, does not indicate who wrote it. They say it's from tradition in the church. Okay, sure. I can accept lowercase t tradition that says Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. No biggie. That doesn't mean that I have to accept all of church tradition as infallible. I don't have to accept the Roman Catholic way of looking at tradition to say, hey, yeah, you know, Irenaeus got it right. I agree with him when he talks about the authors of various New Testament writings. And accepting that part of tradition does not mean suddenly I can't eat beef on Fridays, that I can't just confess my sins every Sunday during corporate confession rather than having to go to the confessional. Doesn't mean I have to do my penance according to the Roman Catholic scheme of it. I don't have to accept Aristotelian metaphysics to explain the Eucharist. Uh, but then they bring out that, that tired idea that, oh, from the beginning of the church, heretics have quoted and misused scripture to create sects and spread heresies. You mean like this book? This book called the, the Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church, where they misuse the Bible to mislead people into their weirdo sect? Do they not have a mirror? <laughs> Seriously, dude, if you want to say that I'm supposed to submit to your magisterium because people might misinterpret the Bible, Mr. DeMond, you really need to hold a mirror up to yourself and ask yourself, am I talking about me? Am I trying to mislead people with that interpretation of scripture? Like, that's been this whole stinking book. <laughs> this whole book has been them misusing and abusing and twisting scripture left and right to try to prove their message. And, and of course, the rest of the chapter. I mean, I don't want to keep making this into some series on Sola Scriptura versus the DeMond Brothers' hideous misunderstandings. But, I mean, the rest of this chapter is just dumb, right? The Bible does not teach that private scripture interpretation was intended by Jesus. So, the existence of a teaching magisterium does not undo sola scriptura. Uh, the Bible could not be mass distributed until the 15th century. I don't care, the Bible is still the only source and norm of faith, dogma, and morals. Besides... In 1 Clement's letter to the Corinthian church, he tells the laity to search the scriptures, meaning a church was supposed to have a copy of the Bible that everybody could read. That was church practice in the first century A.D., Mr. DeMond. Everybody was supposed to be reading the scripture and doing their best to learn it. Uh, Jesus commanded his apostles to preach the gospel, not to write. Okay, what is writing but written preaching when it comes to the canon of scripture it does preach to you as you read it this is dumb the apostles wrote for a reason they keep going paul consulted the church not the bible when faced with his doctrinal dilemma in acts 15 it wasn't a dilemma it was them saying we need to bring this up to the church that there is a judaizing heresy which goes against the scriptures that they had, as well as the gospel. That's why the whole council was brought and called in Acts 15 to settle that dispute. 
And of course, they bring up an objection. Protestants say 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 teaches scripture alone. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This passage does not teach scripture alone. It teaches that all scripture is inspired. It teaches that all scripture is profitable. It teaches that scripture furnishes a man for good works. But Protestants point to the part which says that it enables a man of God to be furnished unto all good works. They claim those words teach a self-sufficiency of scripture, that nothing else is needed. This is refuted by a number of points. Before we go over their quick points here, have you noticed that the promises here regarding Holy Scripture are not given to church tradition? And the Roman Catholic Church agrees because they don't say that every single word of every single church father and every single word of every single theologian in their past is fully inspired. The DeMond brothers don't believe that, do they? Otherwise, they would agree with Vatican II, which is a rightful product of the Roman Catholic Magisterium. I want to know how scripture and tradition are equal when scripture does not change, but tradition keeps changing. And guys that were formerly recognized as being tradition are no longer recognized as being tradition. And certain teachings, like the DeMond brothers' favorite, Extra Ecclesium Nola Salus, have to keep getting reinterpreted in fun and interesting ways to hide the fact that doctrine is changing, if that's the case with so-called apostolic tradition, then it cannot be inspired and infallible in anything near the way that Holy Scripture is inspired and infallible. Tradition must submit to Scripture because the promises of God regarding Holy Scripture are superior to any of the promises he's given regarding the teachings of the apostles and their successors, if there are any promises given to their successors in the first place. Now, what is their answer to the Protestant objection? To bring up 2 Timothy 2.21, If a man therefore purge himself from these bad works, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. The Bible says that if a man purges himself from certain bad works, he will be prepared for every good work. This is the same phrase as 2 Timothy 3.17. Certainly this doesn't mean that purging oneself from those bad works is sufficient in itself for every good work. Even Protestants would say that the man would still have to accept Jesus, heed the authority of Scripture, and refrain from other things. Well, it says he's a vessel, right, in which God can pour certain things in. Did, did they not read the entirety of the uh, entirety of the verse there? I guess they didn't. So their point doesn't stand nearly as strong as they think it does. <laughs> 
In other words, if a man is a Christian and accepts the authority established by Christ and if he purges himself from these things, he will be prepared for all good works. Likewise, if a man is a Christian and accepts the church, the tradition, etc., then knowing the scriptures will furnish him for all good works. <sighs> Just got You got to sneak in your little, your silly little Catholic doctrines, don't you, bud? And they, they bring in James 1, 3, and 4. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And they claim that these couple of verses regarding sanctification mean perfection in the same way that St. Paul is talking about uh, being furnished for every good work from the Word, which is a confusion of topic. Okay, you're not making a good argument. Now, bear with me, guys. They have two more sections on their attack on Sola Scriptura. The Bible specifically warns against misusing the scriptures to create false doctrines which lead to destruction. Oh, really? <laughs> they quote Second Peter three fifteen and 16, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom giveth unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Do you not realize how this is kind of an own, Mr. DeMond? Because almost every single word in your book is wrong. How much you have to torture the scriptures to try to squeeze some Roman Catholic doctrinal juice out of them and put them in a cup. How much you've lied. How much you've omitted. How horribly you've made your case. I think St. Peter is warning us against you. Now, last section on their Sola Scriptura thing, and we'll, we'll cap off the series here in a couple recordings. Scripture alone was an idea that only became popular in the 16th century. The idea of Scripture alone was unknown in the early church. All the ancient local churches recognized the hierarchical structure of the church and the role of tradition and the church's authority in understanding the scriptures. And then they provide a few quotes from John Chrysostom, Basil the Great, Augustine, and Athanasius, uh, to which I reply to all of them, I don't care. I really don't. <laughs> okay, Chrysostom says, Stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught. Uh, from this it is clear that they did not hand down everything by letter, but there was much also that was not written. Like that which was written, the unwritten too is worthy of belief, so let us regard the tradition of the church also as worthy of belief. Uh, Mr. Chrysostom, I don't care. I don't care that you said that. And neither does the Roman Catholic Church, because they don't believe everything you said. You are not infallible and inspired, according to the Roman Catholic Church. St. Basil the Great says something similar on the Holy Spirit, uh, the book, The Holy Spirit. Of the dogmas and kerygmas preserved in the church, some we possess from written teaching, and others we receive from the tradition of the apostles, handed on to us in mystery. 
In respect to piety, both are of the same force. Mr. St. Basil the Great, I don't care. Neither does the Roman Catholic Church, because according to the Roman Catholic Church, not all of your writings, and not everything you said, is inspired. Same thing with St. Augustine. In regard to those observances which we carefully attend, and which the whole world keeps, and which derive not from Scripture but from tradition, we are given to understand that they are recommended and ordained to be kept, either by the apostles themselves or by plenary councils, the authority of which is quite vital in the church. Mr. Augustine, uh, Mr. St. Augustine, I don't care that you said that, because you are not inspired, and the Roman Catholic Church agrees. They disagree with a ton of your theology. <laughs> and Mr. Athanasius, of course, uh, he immediately proceeded to say, and as I have delivered to you traditions, hold them fast. But with him, the devil, are inventors of unlawful heresies, who indeed refer to the scriptures, but do not hold such opinions as the saints have handed down, i.e. tradition, and receiving them as the traditions of men err, because they do not rightly know them nor their power. Therefore, Paul justly praises the Corinthians because their opinions were in accordance with his traditions. Uh, Mr. Athanasius, sir, like the other three guys, I don't care. Although you do make a great point that people cribbing tradition and saying, haha, this thing I made up, I can just say it's tradition and people have to believe it. Wow, Mr. Athanasius, you have demonstrated to us the danger of putting tradition on the same pedestal as Holy Scripture. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't matter because uh, you are not inspired. Not all of your writing is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Roman Catholic Church agrees. The DeMond brothers agree. They definitely agree when it comes to writings of the modern Catholic Church. Now, I would hope that the difference between a true word spoken by a church father or written in a council or something and a false word written by a heretic or even a false word written by a church father or in a council or something, I would hope that there's a standard by which we judge these things. Yeah, that's the Bible. That's the Bible, and all of church tradition has to be subordinated to it, as all teachers in the church have to be subordinated to the Word of God as well, because we have promises of infallibility for the Word of God and not for the church. So I'm going to stick with the Bible as the only infallible rule source and norm of faith and morals, and I'm just going to ignore you. Now, before we close out for this recording, again, guys, we probably have just two more. I want to point something out. Just because something is old does not mean it is right. You'll notice that these guys, these DeMond brothers, they point to things like the church fathers. They point to wrong books like the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas. They point to all this stuff. They point to the Septuagint and say, see, see, now you have to pray to Mary. Now you have to deny sola fide. <laughs> In a book that's called The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, they've only made the case for me that I should be going to the scriptures. And it should be evident that it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter what kind of logical trees you can come up with, and it doesn't matter how great all this old stuff may or may not be. 
you're going to end up with a subjective opinion like the DeMond brothers. If you follow their attitude, their way of life, their teachings, their way of thinking, if you do that, you're going to end up like them. And it's going to be this my way or the highway kind of heretical community where you just try to squeeze every last bit of blood out of the Holy Scriptures to try to prove your points that are not biblical. Don't do that. Don't be like these guys. <laughs> Especially when the Scriptures are clear and the DeMond brothers most definitely, most certainly are not. But we're going to get into some fun stuff next week when they start talking about Protestants. That's going to be a blast. But, unfortunately, it's going to have to wait till next week. And until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.